0: How's everybody doing? Good, good, good. Oh, the rapiers, your sins are absolved. Um, thank you so much for the circus peanuts wherever you are in here. Yeah, thank you, guys. Yeah, all, all debt is forgiven. Um, God bless you. Uh, if you don't know, if you ever just want to really get on my good side, and if you want to make me morbidly obese, um, circus peanuts are the way to do it. So uh, these things are wonderful. If you've never had one of these, come see me after service. and. Um, It'll change your life. Jesus will change your life, and through Jesus, he made circus peanuts, and um, they, I do eat those. I eat them at gross amounts of, of consumptions. Um, yes, it's bad. Anyways, if you've never been to our church before, uh, we take ourselves really seriously around here, so um, sit up straight and uh, be ready to dive into the Word. No, we're working through the book of Daniel. Did everyone have a good night last night? Was everyone safe and smart and... All that stuff, (laughs) you're not saying anything, so that that makes me worry. Okay, good, good, good. Uh, Let me tell you a story real quick. My daughter wanted to dress up. Does anyone remember Jim and the Holograms from the 80s? (laughs) So that's what my daughter wanted to dress up as. I haven't been so proud as a dad in a long time. (laughs) When my daughter wanted to dress up like an 80s pop star, I was like, that is awesome. So that's what we dressed her up as, and uh, she was going around the square, and of course no one really knew who she was, because you have to be in your mid-30s to remember Jim from Jim and the Holograms, but apparently some guy saw my daughter and was like, oh my gosh, you're Jim, and her face lit up, and he gave her all kinds of candy, and it uh, it was super cool. So anyways, we're working through the book of Daniel. If you've never been to the church before, this is what we do. We take a book of the Bible, we break it down chapter by chapter, line by line, verse by verse. Now, we're in the fourth chapter. We're in the second half of the fourth chapter of the book of Daniel. Now, if you don't know anything about this book of the Bible, this is vastly becoming one of my favorite books that I've ever taught. I'm having a blast with it. Okay, so we've still got a little bit of ways to go. But where we're at in the story, if I can catch you up to speed to the best of my ability, is this. About 2,600 years ago, okay, 600 years before Jesus Christ was born, Daniel and a couple of his friends, three of his friends, lived in what is modern-day Israel, modern-day Jerusalem. The Babylonian Empire at this time was sweeping through the world, swept through Western Asia, moving into the Middle East, conquering everything they can. And as they're conquering everything, they're taking all the resources. And one of the resources that they're taking is they're taking the best and the brightest, the most intelligent, most athletic, most attractive young men... Shipping them off to what is modern-day Iraq. That's where Babylon was, the headquarters of the Babylonian Empire. Shipping them off to modern-day Iraq, which, is, uh, which was Babylon at this time. And they are re-educating and repurposing these young men to work for the king, a guy named Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, So this is where Daniel and his three friends, that's where we find him. 17, 18 years old, they're kids, and they're being re-educated for the purpose of working for Nebuchadnezzar. So we find out later in the story that Nebuchadnezzar starts having nightmares. So he brings in his counsel, his wise men, who are supposed to kind of work in the supernatural realm, brings them in to interpret this dream. They cannot do it. In walks Daniel. He interprets the dream. This elevates him up, up politically in the kingdom. And because he gets elevated, his three friends get elevated with him by his request, okay? We find out that Daniel goes out of town on business. His three friends are left, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They get into some trouble because they will not bow down to an idol that the king has made. They're thrown into a furnace. Miraculously, God saves them either through an angel or through what we call a Christophany, which is like a tangible manifestation of God, okay? Saves these three young men. This elevates these guys even further in the kingdom when Nebuchadnezzar sees this miraculous act happen. And so we get into chapter four, and in chapter four, Nebuchadnezzar has another bad dream. This dream is not about a statue. This dream is about this huge, beautiful tree that gets cut down by an angel, okay And so again, brings in his wise men, says, "Tell me about this dream. They cannot interpret the dream." So and again walks. Daniel. And he starts to interpret this dream. Now, what we talked about last week, we always try to pull a theme from from whatever we study, right? The theme we talked about last week, and I'm going to mirror that again this week, is that the only way that we truly learn to live, the only way that we become what God wants us to be, to operate how God wants us to operate, is we must lay down our life, which means our hopes, our dreams, our aspirations, our needs, our desires. We lay those things down and only when we do that do we learn what, what, what living truly looks like, okay? We talked about that last week. Now this week, and I'll explain this, it sounds very ominous and vague, is that we will only fix our identity crisis when we fix our repentance crisis. We will only find out who we are when we find out who God is, okay? Kind of mirrors what we talked about last week, but we're going to build on that a little bit more. Now, if you, again, if you have not been with us, if you have not been with us, you should have got a notes handout when you walked in. It has virtually everything I'm going to say in it. If you want to go back and watch some of the previous services, you can do that and catch up. It's not super hard to, to, to comprehend. You can go back and read the chapters before. We're going to start in verse 19 of chapter 4. It's in the Old Testament right after Ezekiel. If you want to be super fancy, if you have the YouVersion app on your phone, the Bible app, click on more live event or something like that, our church will pop up and all the notes are there, okay? So you can follow along that way. All right, I'm going to pray. We're going to dive into this and uh, we'll see where God takes us, okay? Everyone's doing okay? Everyone's good? Good, good, good? Okay. Lord Jesus, God, we love you. We just thank you, Lord, and we want to lift you up. God, today as we study your word, just open up our eyes, open up our ears. Help us to understand what you put in front of us today. Father, We pray, God, this morning as all these churches in our city are having service, God, we pray that you bless the leadership of those churches. We pray that you bless the congregations of those churches. God, help us to advance your kingdom and not our kingdoms. We love you, Lord Jesus, God. We just pray that your will be done here as it is in heaven, God. And again, just help us to understand what we're going to study today. Keep your hand on me, God. Help me to be accurate. Help me to be gracious. And God, help me just to, just to make you proud, Lord. I love you, and I lift you up, and we praise you, God. Bless all my brothers and sisters today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I'm going to read a little bit. I'm going to go back and break it down to, to the best of my abilities, okay? We're starting in verse 19, chapter 4 of the book of Daniel. If you do not have a Bible, it's cool. I'm going to read it all to you. Not the whole Bible, just this half chapter. Here we go. Then Daniel, whose name is Belshazzar, was stunned for a moment. And his thoughts alarmed him. The king said, "Belshazzar, don't let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. Belshazzar, that's Daniel, answered, My Lord, may the dream apply to those who hate you and its interpretation to your enemies. The tree that you saw which grew large and strong, whose top reached the sky and was visible to the entire earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and on it, was food for all and under it the wild animals lived and in its branches the birds of the air lived. That tree is you, the king. For you have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown and even reaches the sky and your dominion extends to the ends of the earth. Now look, let me paint the picture for you. Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar loved each other. The pagan king and the follower, the prophet of God, they cared for each other deeply. If you want to imagine the scene, imagine that Daniel was brought in probably to kind of like an inner office area of the king. They're sitting on a couch or they're sitting on the floor. They're talking very candidly. And so you can imagine Daniel closes his eyes and he's asking God for an interpretation of this dream. God, give me clarity. Tell me what's going on. And as he does that, he's stunned his eyes open up, he's obviously troubled by something. Now we start to see the love that Nebuchadnezzar has for Daniel because Nebuchadnezzar says, Daniel, don't, don't get so stressed out about this. Don't worry about this so much. Just tell me what your God has told you. And so we see that these two have a strong relationship. Now, if you haven't been with us and you're wondering why they're calling him Belshazzar and not Daniel, Daniel had his name changed when he came to Babylon, okay? And so chapter 4 is a letter, and this letter is going to be sent out to all of the provinces of Babylon, and they would have known Daniel not as Daniel, they would have known him as Belshazzar. We see this in the New Testament too. Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament that you have, was known, by, it was known as Saul by the Jews and Paul by the Greeks. Now, there's nothing derogatory or nothing deep with that. It's just who they, uh, who they knew him best by, by what name. So there's nothing deep there. Okay, so when he gets this interpretation, Daniel, essentially what he says to Nebuchadnezzar, is he says this. He says, may this dream apply to those that hate you. He knew that it applied to Nebuchadnezzar, but what he's essentially saying is he goes, man, I wish that this was for someone else. I wish it wasn't for you, but it is. I wish it was for someone that was against you or one of your enemies. And again, this is not flattery. He's not trying to kiss Nebuchadnezzar's butt. That's not what he's doing. He's genuinely saying, I love you, and I hate the fact that these things are gonna happen to you. Now, when we read that, We must keep in mind this is a non-believer and a believer, which means in our lives there are going to be people that come around that we're not going to have the same ideology with. But God has called us to love people, deeply love people that have different ideologies than us. There is a couple, two males, that I had coffee with just about a week and a half ago. I've known them for about eight years. Not only do I not agree with their lifestyle, they are hardcore atheists. They believe that this book that I read is just fairy tales. Now, I genuinely love this couple, and I believe they genuinely love me. Now, we disagree, but look, if they don't see the love of Christ through me to them, there's not a chance that they're ever going to come to a saving knowledge of who Jesus is. So we must love, deeply love people who are different than us. So Daniel loves this man, Nebuchadnezzar, loves him. And so he looks at him and he's going to have to tell him a very, very hard truth. He says, Nebuchadnezzar, this dream that you're having about this beautiful tree that gets cut down, that tree is you. And everything that this tree supports is going to be scattered and it's going to be lost for a period of time. And so Daniel reminds Nebuchadnezzar how important he is. He tries to paint this picture. Nebuchadnezzar, do you know how much God has entrusted you with? Your power is unmatched. Your influence is across the entire known world. Do you understand how big of a deal you are? Now, backing up from this, I like to pull something away from every chunk that, that I read, okay? Pulling away from this, I want to ask us the question, do we love people enough to call them out? Not just non-believers, believers. Do we love them enough to say, you've got to stop doing that? Now, it doesn't end there. If we truly love them, we say, hey, look, that's wrong. You've got to stop. Let me help you out of that and let me walk with you as you go through this change, We need to help people. We need to walk. Guys, it is messy. I hate tracks. Do you guys remember tracks? Churches just give out tracts all the time. That is not discipleship and that is not true evangelism. Evangelism is pulling people up, calling out their sin and walking with them through the long haul, not just giving them a piece of paper, calling them a sinner, right? So are we honest with people? And when we are honest with people, do we have good intentions about it? Sometimes we love to call people out because it makes us look bigger. Sometimes we like to call people out because it makes us look like we have the upper hand or that we're spiritually more mature. When we call people out, when we are honest with people, do we have good intentions? Do we use tactfulness? Do we use love? Because pure love, listen, pure love, everyone says God is love, that's accurate, but pure love, biblical love, always has honesty as an ingredient. It says this in 2 Timothy, all scripture, all scripture, that entire book is inspired by God and the entire book is profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training. Whenever God starts to cut things off of us or whenever God says you got to fix this or whenever God exposes our insecurities, it's painful and we're like, what are you doing up there? And it hurts. But God does all that not because he hates you, Jesus' own words, he says, I discipline you. Because I love you. I do this so that you may be complete. I do this so you can go out and perform good works in my name. That's why sometimes he cuts things off of us. That's why he sometimes whittles things. And it's painful when that happens. But he does that for our benefit. Okay? Now we're gonna see that here in a second with Nebuchadnezzar. So it says, the king saw an observer. Daniel's still talking about this dream. The king saw an observer a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump and its roots in the ground with a band of iron and bronze around it in the tender grass of the field. Let him be drenched with dew from the sky and share food with the wild animals for seven periods of time. This is the interpretation, your majesty, And this is the sentence of the Most High that has been passed against my Lord, the King. This is it. He says, "'You will be driven away from people to live with the wild animals. You will feed on grass like cattle and be drenched with dew from the sky for seven periods of time until you acknowledge that the Most High is ruler over the kingdom of men and that He gives it to anyone He wants. As for the command to leave the tree stump with its roots,' Your kingdom will be restored to you as soon as you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, may my advice seem good to you, my king. Separate yourself from your sins by doing what is right. And separate yourself from your injustices by showing mercy to the needy. Perhaps there will be an extension to your prosperity. Now, in the dream, if you weren't here last week, In the dream, there's this massive tree that in the dream, it touches the stratosphere, the sky, and it's the whole world. It's so big, the whole world can see this tree, right? So Daniel goes back and reviews the details of the dream. And in this dream, there's this beautiful tree, and in the dream, this angel comes down, looks at the tree and says, cut it down, destroy the branches, scatter the fruit, just demolish this tree. And so he comes down and does that. We're also reminded of the time that this sentence is going to be carried out. For seven years, this king who's represented by this tree is going to live in insanity like a wild animal. Essentially what this dream represents is this. The man, Nebuchadnezzar, who had never been conquered, he had never lost, no king had ever stood in his way, is about to meet the unconquerable king. He's about to come face to face with God. And so when Daniel says this decree is against my lord, the king. He's talking about Nebuchadnezzar. He is saying that you are about to be humbled by the only king that can never be defeated. And in that, everything he has is going to be robbed from him. Everything he has is going to be stripped away from him. The destroyed tree, which represents Nebuchadnezzar, we call him Nebi around here, would have his branches stripped, his fruit scattered, and all that lived under his his protection would be dispersed. Not just that, this brilliant, intelligent, innovative king would lose his mind and become insane. Now there's a purpose to this punishment, and it's very clear in the interpretation what the purpose of this punishment is. Nebuchadnezzar would suffer for seven years, and the purpose of this seven years of suffering is so he would acknowledge who the boss is. He would acknowledge who the king of kings is. Is. And it says that until he acknowledges that the Most High is ruler over the kingdoms of men and that he gives to them what he wants, we might call this conditional punishment. There's a punishment given by God, but there are parameters to this punishment. We're going to get into some fun theological stuff here in a second. There's these conditions to this punishment. God chose grace over vengeance, and we see that because before the punishment is inflicted, God says it's only going to be for a certain amount of time. It's going to be for seven years, and you know that it's going to come to an end, okay? So there's these conditions around it, all right? Now, about the remaining stump. So right now, the dream or the interpretation has dealt with the tree that has been cut down. Now, what about the roots? What about the stump? Normally, normally, if a king goes crazy and lives naked out in a field for seven years, you would typically lose your kingdom, right? I mean, like if Barack Obama went nuts, ripped off all of his clothes, and was living like a cow out in the middle of the field, we'd probably step back and be like, okay, we should have another election, right? Someone else should be put in office. If not that, at the very least... Someone would see that the king has gone nuts and they would take that as an opportunity to seize the kingdom. Makes sense? Or someone within would say, okay, our boss is out there eating grass, naked in the field. Maybe I should lead the kingdom for a while. Someone would get that idea. Now, we learn that this is not the case. God promised that he would give the kingdom back to him after seven years. So, not only is the punishment conditional though. Here's where we get into the fun stuff. The promise is also conditional. He says, you can have your kingdom back on this condition. You acknowledge that I'm the boss. You acknowledge that the most high rules. So we get into this fun theological conversation about is our redemption, is our salvation conditional? So Daniel 4.26 looks a lot like Romans 10.9 where we see another huge condition that God has laid out through his apostle Paul. It says this, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, then you will be saved. Now look, works do not save our soul. When you compare that cross and what that cross represents to anything we can do, there is no work that humans can do to stack up to what Jesus did on the cross. Everyone agrees with that, right? There are no works that can save our soul, but Salvation is conditional in the fact that if we accept Him, then His grace saves us. And when we understand what that cross represents, works should be a natural byproduct of the redeemed Christian. We often say that works don't save us, which is true, that's biblical, but... We are not saved from our works either. When we understand the work that God has done to save us, good things should naturally be produced from the believer. You guys with me on that too? God has saved us to go out and to do good things for the people around us in the hopes that they will also come into that saving knowledge of who Jesus is. So the sermon has ended. Not this one, you're not that lucky. The sermon that that Daniel is essentially teaching Nebuchadnezzar has come to an end. He gives him the message of God, and the recipient, the king, now has the opportunity to respond to what they've heard. So verse 27 says it best. This is about as black and white as the Bible makes it. Daniel says, king, you need to separate yourself from your sins and to do what is right. You need to separate yourself from your injustices, and you need to help the needy, have mercy towards the needy very, very black and white. Remove yourself from what's evil, walk towards what's right, remove yourself from being unjust to moving into being just. And so he has the opportunity to respond to that. And he says, if you respond to that, perhaps God doesn't have to, but perhaps he'll give you an, an extension to your prosperity. So Daniel emphasizes grace even in the middle of talking about judgment. Now, we often say that God is fair. God is not fair. God is extremely unfair. If God were fair, all of us would be damned. None of us have done anything to merit salvation. We've all fallen short, the Bible says. But if we turn from what we're doing and we repent, which means we genuinely follow Christ with all of our heart, soul, and mind. If we truly repent, He's quick to forgive, He's quick to show grace. But let this just soak in over lunch. But Nebuchadnezzar's, in his case, God foresaw what Nebuchadnezzar was going to do, so he was predestined to be punished. Moving on. So the foundations of salvation are essentially this. We're talking about the bedrock, right? The very, very least common denominator of being saved, knowing who Jesus is and following Jesus. That if we accept what he has done and make him Lord, we love to accept that Jesus died for us. We don't really like to make him Lord, which means that he is the boss. That his way is better than our ways. But if we accept what he has done, if we make Him the Lord of, us, of our lives, then His grace, not our works, save us. We must also know that repentance is not just saying, I'm sorry. Repentance is more than forgiveness. Repentance is a lifestyle change. We must constantly be aligning ourselves to what God wants us to be. It's not just looking at pornography at 3 in the morning, saying, I'm sorry, God. It's saying, I'm sorry, and then trying to figure out a way to stop looking at pornography. It's a lifestyle change. So do we have the guts to look at our brothers and sisters in the eyes, our friends, and tell them that they must change? Now again, that must be done with tact, it must be done with love, it must be done by trusting we have a whole team of people right now in Salem, Massachusetts. You know what happens in Salem during Halloween? It looks like Bonnaroo up there for like three days, right? It's just crazy and there's all these witches walking around and there's witchcraft going on and there's fortune telling and all this crazy stuff going on in Salem. The city literally doubles in size the week of Halloween. It Goes from 50,000 to about 110,000 people on the week of Halloween. So we send 12 people up there to help with our church up there that we sponsor, to help just kind of do ministry stuff, right? you know, kid stuff, and we we play music and all this kind of jazz up there, right? So Corey Drake was telling me they have hundreds of street preachers that show up once a year to yell and tell everyone how they're going to go to hell. You know why that's ineffective? Because those people have not earned the right to tell anyone anything. It's when you get in day to day and you learn people's names and you take them out to coffee and you share dinner with them and you truly fall in love with people, then you have the opportunity to look at them in the face and say, okay, you've got to realign yourself. But until they trust us, they're not going to listen to us, okay? So let me show you this picture real quick. This is not an actual picture because, again, they didn't have like Polaroids back in uh, Babylonian days. This is a rendering of what they think Nebuchadnezzar's house would have looked like. My house is, you know, comparable to this. Um, But uh, this is what they think Nebuchadnezzar's house would have looked like. Now, the reason why I'm showing you this is Nebuchadnezzar was a genius. And one of the things that was very ingenious about him was, is he was a master at creating what they call hanging gardens. So when you're looking at this picture, and I'm about to read you to this, this part, his master bedroom, if you will, would have been on this top tier, they think. So when he's out looking over Babylon... And he's in this beautiful palace with this beautiful uh, gardens around him. Just kind of keep that in mind as I read this part right here, okay? All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar at the end of 12 months as he was walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon. The king exclaimed, Is this not Babylon the Great that I have built by my vast power to be a royal residence and to display my majestic glory? While the words were still in the king's mouth, a voice from heaven said, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared that the kingdom has departed from you. You will be driven from people to live with the wild animals. You will feed on the grass like cattle for seven periods of time until you acknowledge the Most High is ruler over the kingdom of men, and he gives it to anyone he wants." At that moment, the sentence against Nebuchadnezzar was executed. He was driven away from people. He ate grass like cattle, and his body was drenched with dew from the sky until his hair grew like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. Now, this is important. Nebuchadnezzar loved Daniel. And in their whole conversation that we've been talking about so far this morning, he listened politely He respected Daniel as a prophet of God, but essentially he walked out of the conversation unconverted. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar looked at the prophet of God, the man of God, he looked at someone delivering the word that could save his soul, and he said, it's not for me. I refuse to believe in a God that would punish people for not doing what he says. Sounds like church on the weekend, right? It's right there in front of him but he doesn't believe that God would punish people that doesn't do what he says to do. And one of the greatest stumbling blocks of modern-day Christianity is we love the idea that God is love, but we don't want to address the fact that perfect love also has perfect justice. There will come a time, according to the Bible, when God will have enough of the evil that is on earth. He will have enough of the sex trafficking. He will have enough of the greed. He will have enough of of the children being hurt and people being abused. He will have enough of of people being taken advantage of. He will have enough of that, and he will reinsert himself, and he will deal with evil. And we do not like to talk about that, mostly because we want to harbor evil within us. But there is this other side of God. Here's how gracious God is, though. God tells all this stuff to Nebuchadnezzar through Daniel and gives him 12 months, the Bible says, to get his act together. He had 12 months to counsel with Daniel, 12 months to repent and change from the the ways he was doing. But instead of focusing on God, more than likely, Nebuchadnezzar just focused on himself. One day he's walking around his his beautiful building, waterfalls going over the side and hanging gardens, and he's looking over a city that he built of course, we know that it's by the hand of God, but he built this. He cut down the cedars of Lebanon. And he, he, he was in charge of the armies that built all this up. He had built the beautiful palace, the walkways, the gorgeous monuments that are all throughout Babylon. And as he sat up there, he said, wow, look at me. Now, pride is a dangerous thing. C.S. Lewis said that pride is the worst of all sins because all sin comes from the root of Pride. All other sins filter through pride. And in Nebuchadnezzar's eyes, quoting the Bible, he said, Look, this is built by my vast power. My royal residence is to display my majestic glory. Now, this is worth remembering. Personal pride that locks out God from our achievements always leads to spiritual ruin. Personal pride that says, I did all this, and locks out God from giving him credit, always leads us to spiritual ruin. Whenever people are arrogant, CEOs, businessmen and women, congressmen, pastors, whenever these people are super arrogant and say, look at what I've done, take a couple of steps back from those people. It's only a matter of time before they fall. According to the Bible, it's only a matter of time. And so with these words in his mouth, as he's boasting and bragging on himself, it's so poetic, right? As he's doing this, a voice from heaven speaks down to him, and instantly he starts to convert to an animalistic insanity, and it says that he was driven away. Here's a little interesting little tidbit. More than likely, he was driven away to a plot of land that Daniel had set aside so he could keep track of where Nebuchadnezzar was. Daniel knew how this whole thing was going to play out, so there was probably a plot of land somewhere to where his subjects wouldn't see him, but Daniel could keep an eye on him. And so that's where he was driven away to. And more than likely, Daniel probably took over Babylon. Odd change of events, right? He came in as a slave of Babylon, and now he's going to be the leader of Babylon for seven years. Now, the Scripture doesn't say this, but it just makes the most sense. He was the most educated. He was the most capable of leading Babylon, and he was probably the only man that after seven years would give the empire back to its rightful leader because he knew God's timeline, and he knew that it was supposed to go back to Nebuchadnezzar. So more than likely, Daniel took over. And in verse 32, the second half of it, we see the thesis of the whole book of Daniel restated again, that God is ruler over the kingdoms of men. And he gives the kingdoms of men to whomever he wants. In other words, God is sovereign. You've only got about another year before I'll quit saying this, but as the elections approach... You guys already know where I'm going. Oh, here's Corey with his politics again. As the elections approach, when everyone just goes buck wild crazy over these different individuals, step back and say, God is in control of the kingdoms of men. Whoever wins this election, it's because of God's sovereignty that they have ended up there. Now, this sovereignty in this story is immediately immediately displayed when Nebuchadnezzar starts to resort back or, or digress into a repulsive animal. Now, let that soak in. We read the story and we talk about Nebuchadnezzar. Think about seven years, seven years, guys. It almost took me that long to get my bachelor's degree. Seven years that this guy is going to live like an animal naked out in the field. Now, if you go to modern-day Iraq, in the summer it gets up to about 120 degrees, and in the winter, it gets below freezing. And he lived out in these elements. And it's funny, it's kind of a gracious, miraculous thing of God that his hair grew and got all matted like this because it probably protected him from death. And for seven years, this arrogant king resorted back to what they call zoanthropy, which is going back to a, a, an animalistic mindset, a subhuman way of thinking. And that's what happened to him. Now, look, it's easy for us to step back and look at Nebuchadnezzar and judge him. What an idiot! Nebuchadnezzar had a man sent to him who said, This is exactly what God wants you to do. He had a year to think about it, and all he could think about was himself. (laughs) So you talk about abusing grace. When I look at my life, how many times does God vie for my attention, trying to get me to turn around? Corey, you've got to stop. You've got to stop. You've got to do this differently. Be humbled. Listen to me. In your life, how many times does God do that to us? And the problem is is that we, and I'm talking about me, guys, we become so arrogant. We become so complacent in our faith. I've been a Christian for 30 years. I'm good. Got it all locked down, right? Said a prayer when I was 12. Got confirmed when I was 13. Everything is gravy. And we become, these two words define my generation more than anything, we become entitled and distracted are we so misled by the signs of God that we abuse His grace? Paul talked about this. Should we sin more so grace can abound? No, 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 no. We're to learn from our mistakes, and we're to turn from them and to walk the way that God wants us to do. But we are so distracted, entitled, arrogant, complacent, that sometimes we don't hear the voice of God. We don't see God trying to get our attention. Last part. This is so cool, guys. It says, but at the end of those days, it's talking about the seven years. I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven, and my sanity returned to me. Then I praised the Most High, and I honored and glorified Him who lives forever. In His dominion, in everlasting dominion, for His kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, and he does what he wants with the armies of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. There is no one who can hold back his hand or say to him, What have you done? At that time, my sanity returned to me, and my majesty and my splendor returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and my nobles sought me out. I was reestablished over my kingdom, and even more greatness came to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt and glorify the King of heaven, because all of his works are true, and his ways are just. He is able to humble those who walk in pride. Now if you want to find a conversion story in the Bible, people talk about the Apostle Paul, people talk about Peter, they talk about all these other. This is one of the greatest conversion stories you will ever read. At the end of these seven years. As the letter comes to a conclusion, chapter 4 is a letter sent out to all of Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar, okay? It's cinematic in how right as the seven-year sentence ends, we don't know how it looks if God gave him kind of a temporary sanity for a second or if maybe he's eaten grass and one day looks up and realizes that God is everything he said he is, that his sanity comes back to him. Now the third person narrative ends, and now Nebuchadnezzar is once again speaking for himself. And we see in that that his mind has been healed, and the first thing he does when God has converted him, the first thing he does is he uses his thoughts for praise. We need to in our lives remember our redemption. Do you guys remember what you were before you came into contact with Christ? And those of you who don't know Christ, I can tell you, being a person that lived in deep, deep, deep darkness for the first 23 years of my life, knowing Christ is so much better. And in our lives, we tend to forget what He's done for us, what we do in our prayers. Let's just be honest for a second. We ask for forgiveness and we beg for provision, but we rarely just praise God. Can we be honest? God, I did all these things wrong, and by the way, I need all these things. And we rarely just talk about how wonderful God is. We rarely remember that God has redeemed us from destruction, from evil, from ourselves. And what we see in Nebuchadnezzar is the only response to a heart that has been changed and a mind that has been converted is to worship the only one that can change the heart and convert the mind. That should be our response. When one really starts to understand what that cross represents, there should be a praise. There should be a worship. There should be a humility that follows that. And so if you want to plagiarize the Bible, which God's okay with. He doesn't need your royalties, right? If you want to plagiarize the Bible, verses 34 and 35 are wonderful. Incorporate this into your prayer life. Look at how this former pagan king writes these things down. And even the most learned theologian can't top this kind of a writing. We see that he's been humbled. We see that he acknowledges the true God, that he's in awe of God's power. And one could step back though from this and say, why did this whole thing have to happen? Why couldn't God have just like transformed his mind seven years prior? Why did he have to live like this? Why did he have to suffer? I don't have all the good answers for that. But I know that in God's sovereignty, in God's wisdom, He permits sin for a period of time, knowing that He will bring sin to judgment in the day of His wrath. And in the meantime, this is hard for us to understand, sin, however bad it looks like the world is getting right now, it will never exceed the limits that God has put on it. He has put a limit on it, and in His sovereignty, it will never exceed that limit. And from our perspective, our finite limited perspective. We look up to God and we're like, God, have you lost control? And he has not lost control. He is in complete control of everything that is going on. He's also a generous God. After the seven years, notice Nebuchadnezzar doesn't just get his kingdom back. It's better than it was before. It says that his majesty, his splendor had been returned to him greater than it previously was. We also see out of Daniel, Daniel's just a baller, right? I mean, this guy's amazing. We see out of Daniel humility, and we see that he's not like into turf guarding. He could have easily seized Babylon and made it his. But when the rightful king came back, the king that God wanted in power at that time, Daniel handed it back over. So like Daniel... We are to trust that God gives us what we need to control, when we need to control it, and what is out of our control, we can give to other people, we can delegate that authority, we can spread out the kingdom of God for others to also work in and be okay with that. You wouldn't believe how arrogant and how territorial pastors are in your city. Maybe you would. You wouldn't believe how hard it is to get churches together to work together on projects. If we were truly as focused on the kingdom of God as we all say we are, we would have more of a team mentality in our city. And it's a shame that it's not greater than what it is. If we truly believe that the kingdom needs to be advanced, if this is not a good church for you, let us point you in the direction of some other good churches in this town. The reason why we don't do membership at this church, I'm not knocking on churches that do, is because your membership is in the greater kingdom, it's not in the experienced community. If this is not a good fit, go somewhere where it is a good fit. If we're not traditional enough, or if we're if we're you know, if we're not as wild for you, I don't know if that's you know, Kyle's pretty wild, but if we're not as wild for you, there's wilder churches and there's more traditional churches, and we will help you find where you need to be because I hope that we're more focused on the kingdom. Here's the thing though, in chapter four, that I want you to pull away, though. There's two big things. We see in chapter four a man who has an identity crisis. Now, we like to pick on Nebuchadnezzar, and we like to point fingers at him, and we like to criticize him and say all these things, but we also have identity crisis. In fact, if you want to boil it down, the largest problem that we have in culture right now is not same-sex marriage. It's not abortion. It's not all the hot-button issues that we like to fight about and lose friends over. Our greatest issue is the fact that people don't know who they are. People don't know where they need to find their identity. Now look, let me show you this, and we learned it from this chapter. If we do not know who we are in God, if we do not know our identity, this is what will happen to all of us. If we don't know who we are in Christ, we become control freaks. What I mean by that is, is when we don't know God, when we don't trust God, when our identity is not found in God, we take all of our health into our hands. We take our marriage into our hands, we take our career into our hands, we take our children's lives into our hands, we take everything and we hold it tight because we believe that we are in charge completely of our destinies. When we don't know who we are, we're destined to fail because we cannot handle all the things that life throws at us. But we take it and we think that we can control it. And we are in charge. Gosh, we create our own mix when we go out and grocery shop. We create all of our own apps on our smart TVs. We are in complete control of our lives when we don't know who we are. We also, if we do not know who we are in Jesus, if we do not find our identity in God, we allow ourselves to be defined by our circumstances. Listen, you're not a divorcee. You're not a victim of abuse. You're not someone that has lost their virginity prematurely. You're not all these circumstances. You're not the hand that life has dealt you. When we start to understand that we are sons and daughters of the king of kings, we learn that the things that have happened to us in life do not put a price tag or a value or a barometer on how good we are. Right? Right? Listen, those of you who have been dealt a bad hand, I am so sorry, but let me also tell you this. There is not a person in this room that doesn't have scars and battle wounds from this life. None of us will get out of this life unscathed. None of us. But that is not what defines you. Your circumstances are not where you find your value and your purpose. When you don't know who you are in Christ, all of us, we try to find purpose and we try to find value in gender. Look at the transgender movement that is just huge right now. Do you know what Christianity's biggest problem is? We keep trying to deal with the symptoms, and we, we are not dealing with the overarching problem. The problem is not transgenderism or homosexuality or sex outside of marriage or promiscuity. That is not the problem. The problem is, is these people don't understand who they are in Christ. And If we would focus on the identity of people, the true identity, because even Paul said this, You're not male or female. You're not Greek or Jew. You're not a slave or free. Essentially, what he says is you're not defined by your gender, your skin color, or your occupation. You are determined. You are found, your identity is found in Christ Jesus. And if we would help people find who they are in Jesus, all these other things would work out. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God, Find your identity in the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. All the rest of the stuff will naturally take care of itself. I don't have to call people out on their greed. I just need to show them who Jesus is and Jesus will show them that they don't need to be greedy. Jesus will convict their heart to give their excess money away or to help those in need. God will do that, not just through a revelation, but through his word. He will do that. And if I can help people fall in love with Jesus and find their purpose and value in Jesus, they'll pick up this book and I don't have to hit them with this book. God will teach them, God will instruct them. What happens is if we do not find our identity in Christ, we will never find contentment. We will never find purpose. We will never find value. We will not do it. That's why billionaires jump off buildings. That's why movie stars take their lives. There was one last week that jumped off a a bridge in L.A. He was an MTV star, killed himself. Used to be a male model and had his own TV show. Discontent. All the time we see this, that trying to find our identity and everything else besides God has not worked. We will never find contentment. But look, we cannot reconcile our identity crisis until we start to reconcile our repentance crisis. Now, you and I have been sold a lie this is not the lie. Let me tell you what the lie is, and this is my rebuttal. The lie is that one can be saved by simply acknowledging that there's a God up there. Not true. In fact, in the book of James, he says that even the devils in hell believe that there's one God, and they're afraid of him, but they're still in hell. The acknowledgement that God is up there is an incomplete salvation statement. And I'm bothered by how many denominations just say, just accept that he's up there. Accept that he died on the cross. Man, Satan knows that he died on the cross and accepts that he's up there. That is an incomplete statement. There is no genuine relationship with God without an admittance that we need help. Without an admittance that we need to change our course of direction. Whenever people say, come as you are, yes, come as you are. But when someone has a genuine, real encounter with God, you never leave the same way. Whenever one comes face to face with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, you're forever altered. You're forever changed. And so, yes, come, come with your brokenness, but God doesn't leave you broken. Come with your insecurities, God doesn't leave you insecure. God changes you, He fixes us. He makes us something better than what we can ever be on our own. And we need to remember that repentance is a lifestyle, this is something that we're always doing. You don't take a $300,000 sports car and never work on the alignment. No, no, no. You want this high-powered machine to always be able to go in a straight line when you let go of the wheel. And to do that, you have to constantly evaluate the alignment of this car. We're the same way spiritually. We don't just give our life to God when we're a teenager and then just not talk to Him for the next 40, 50 years. We constantly realign our lives, our actions, our thoughts. We constantly give Him everything. And we realign ourselves to make sure that we're on the right track. And again, Daniel said it so plainly. Separate yourself from what's wrong and move towards what's right. Men, if you struggle with lust and porn, leave the laptop at work, plug the phone up in the bedroom, give your wife every single password to everything you have, buy some kind of software, do whatever you have to do, remove yourself from that and walk towards what's right. If you struggle with greed or if you struggle with drunkenness, like, don't go to bars. I mean, I know that's mind-boggling, right? I struggle with alcohol and I keep falling. Well, where are you at? I'm at Whiskey dicks at 2 in the morning. I'm like, okay. Anyways, so... If that's your struggle, remove yourself from that. Cut those things off. If you're unjust, stop doing things that are unfair and start showing mercy to those who are in need. This is simple stuff. I know that it's more complicated when we apply it. But here's the thing. For those of us with these identity crisis, and again, we, we are just plagued with an identity crisis right now in our world. If we will turn around... If we will genuinely repent, not just say, I'm sorry, but say, God, realign me to what you want me to be. When we ask for forgiveness and we align ourselves with him, we don't just find out who God is. Listen, we start to find out who we are. Now, young ladies who struggle with promiscuity, Their whole outlook on life changes when they find out that they're not a piece of meat like the world tells them that they are, but they are a daughter of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. They'll treat their bodies differently. You know, the whole idea of pornography, of course, it's always bad, right? But my whole thinking of pornography became dramatically even even stronger against it when I had two little girls. You know why? Because all the porn that people watch, once upon a time, those ladies were someone's little girl. And so when we understand that the women who are taken advantage of and the men who are taken advantage of, when we start to understand what their identity truly is, that God looks down on us, when God, after creating the sun and the moon and the stars, after God created the earth, after God created the vegetation and the fish and the things that fly in the air and the beautiful animals that walk around, after he did all that and he created mankind, breathed his Holy Spirit into him and stepped back, and God essentially said, that is the greatest thing I have ever done. When we start to understand that you and I are the masterpiece of God, everything looks different, doesn't it? Everything looks different. What I do with my body is different when I understand this is the temple of the Holy Spirit of God. How I look at you is different. Regardless of your circumstances, regardless of your mistakes, regardless of where you are right now in life, regardless if you're a radical Muslim that wants to kill me, regardless if you're an angry, uh, an angry atheist that, that thinks my religion is stupid, regardless of the ideologies that you have that are different from mine, when I understand where your identity should lie, I will treat you different. And I will treat myself differently. When we turn around and acknowledge who he is, we start to learn who we are. Would you bow your heads with me, please? As your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, um, I want to tell you, those of you in this room, you're not looking around, you're not looking at me. Those of you who have made atrocious mistakes... Those of you who are overcoming addictions, those of you who who think your divorce has labeled you, those of you who think your your mistakes have labeled you, those of you who think your achievements label you, and you're so hard-pressed to keep achieving more and more and more because you believe your value is based on what you do, those of you who are struggling with your place in the world, those of you who can't find your purpose, those of you who don't think you're worth much. I want to tell you, because the Bible supports it, that God looks down on us, and before we were even constructed in our parents, in our mother's womb, God knew us, and He knew where we'd be, and at the risk of sounding cliche or cheesy, He looks down from His throne in heaven right now, and He knows every hair on your head, He knows exactly where you are in life, He knows exactly your insecurities, and your struggles, and your doubts, and your fears, He knows all that. And he looks past all that, and he says, I am absolutely in love with you, and you are the greatest thing. You are the greatest thing that I have ever done. I know a lot of you do not believe that, but it's true. For all of you who are struggling with your place in the world, God loves you ridiculously. And if you will just turn to him, And if you'll repent and you'll find out who he is, you will start to understand who you are. You're a son, you're a daughter of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. As we're about to take communion, your heads are still bowed, your eyes are closed. There's communion on my right and left. That symbolizes how much Jesus loves you. That God would send his only son that whoever believes in him will never die. They'll have everlasting life. The bread represents his body. The juice represents his blood and the fact that his Holy Spirit was poured out on us and that we're sealed by it if we'll just believe in him. You're welcome to take that if you ask God to forgive you of your sins. There's people up here to my left that would love to pray with you. If you have anything, anything, just be honest and transparent and vulnerable and let them pray for you. Lord Jesus, God, we love you. We thank you, Father. I pray, God, that right now you just start to reveal to us. Reveal to us. Cut through our brokenness. Cut through our shame. Cut through our guilt. Cut through all of our crap, God. And, Lord, let us see how you see us. Let us understand who you are so we can understand who we are. God, we love you, Lord. Show grace on my brothers and sisters, God, and help them. We thank you. We love you, and we praise you, Lord. Jesus' name. Amen. You guys are welcome to help yourself. Thank you so much for your patience.